Well, let's let's again just ask the Lord's blessing on our time of, of prayer, on our time of uh, consideration of His Word together, brethren. Please join me. Lord, we thank You for this opportunity to come and to preach and hear Your Holy Word, and we pray that's exactly what would be done, that it would be Your Word and Your Word alone that as we try to get our minds and hearts around what is revealed in Ezekiel 1, you would help us to deal faithfully with the text, to not read into the text, but Lord, to benefit from the God of this text, revealing himself to all of our hearts. We pray that we would bow before you, Lord, each of us, and have dealings with you that would bring joy to our souls and strength to our hearts and to our minds as we try to live in this fallen world, in this wicked and sinful generation, where much discouragement is on the right and on the left, we pray, Lord, for grace and for the Spirit to look up to heaven, Lord, to see you in all of your glory, ruling over heaven and earth as the supreme ruler of the universe. And may we be strengthened as you strengthen your servant and your remnant in Ezekiel's day. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll turn Ezekiel 1 with me. You'll remember last week we opened up this subject by beginning to look at the name of God that we find very frequently referred to in Ezekiel. And that name is Adonai, which means the supreme ruler of the universe, heaven and earth. That's what God is. That when you think of the political situation in the world and in our country, you need to think beyond this world and you need to think about a throne that's in heaven and the one who occupies that throne who is God. And he identifies himself clearly in Ezekiel and all throughout the Old Testament as the God who is in supreme authority and upon a throne of thrones. He's described in the Bible as the King of Kings. And the reason I thought this would be a good subject for us to consider, brethren, is because of the political situation we find ourselves in in this country. Not just political, but cultural situation. We are not on the up and up. We are on the decline morally. And we're calling evil good and good evil. It's like the days of the judges, where morally... We are completely topsy-turvy, completely confused, and not really confused, but promoting a wicked agenda that, make no mistake, is anti-God and a culture in which you and I, as those who believe in God, as the supreme king of kings and as the only moral lawgiver, are going to be marginalized and maybe even sooner than we think persecuted. That's where we're headed. Unless God, in mercy and grace, brings revival, which He can do. But we're in dark times, and there is a proneness for us to think so much about the darkness around us, we can't get away from it, that we would be prone to discouragement. And as God's people, I want to tell you this morning, we have every reason to not be discouraged but to be encouraged because of who God is, what He's like, and because of the fact that, guess what? He's still on the throne. Ezekiel saw God on the throne in Revelation in Ezekiel 1. 
And He is still reigning from heaven. When you hear the vision that we're going to begin to unravel this morning and unpack this morning, you need to think of God like this. Of His glory. Of how He is transcendently beyond and above everything in the universe, including the world and everyone in the world. Above President Biden. Above Putin. Above the rulers of China. No matter where they are, He is above them, ruling over them, and none of His purposes are being thwarted. All of His purposes as the sovereign King of the universe are being worked out perfectly according to His plan, and no one, nothing can stop our God. This God is for us as His people, which is tremendously encouraging to us. And there is no enemy that we need to fear because if God is for us, who can be against us? And I hope that as we think about these things, you will be strengthened. It's it's interesting, Ezekiel's name means just that. God strengthens. His parents wanted this little boy when when he was born to be reminded of this. They didn't know the future. But of everything about God that they could think about, they wanted their son to be reminded of this. They wanted to be reminded of this. That as they called him by his name Ezekiel, they would be reminded when they called his name that God strengthens. When you're feeling weak, when you're feeling confused, when you're feeling desperate, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, be reminded, God strengthens. We talked about the climate in which Ezekiel ministered, preached, and was a prophet. Dark times in Israel. Spiritually dark. The nation had been judged. Ezekiel with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and all of the aspiring young men of promise were taken to Babylon. This is what you did in the ancient world to completely demoralize your enemy. You took them out of their land to your own land and made them your servants and slaves. In a couple of years, Babylon would come back to Israel and completely demolish Jerusalem, burn down all the leading buildings and, and, and all of the leading structures in Jerusalem, including the temple, completely raise it, take all the temple gold and bronze back to Babylon, completely demoralizing this nation. Why did all of this happen? Well, we know repeatedly the prophets preached that God was going to do this. He warned the people to repent and believe. And they did not. They were a stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious people. And they are enduring right now the chastening hand of God. The nation is gone. The temple is soon to be gone. And Ezekiel is called to preach to the Israelites, to his people in Babylon. And you can imagine that in the midst of an unfaithful Israel, people of God turning their backs upon God, there was a remnant. There's always a remnant of true believers in every generation, no matter how dark spiritually the world looks or the country looks. God always has His people. He always has His 7,000, as He said to Elijah, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah is one of them. There are others that need this, this sort of preaching that he's going to give and to be reminded of the God that they serve. That even though all of this has happened to them, God is still with them and for them. In fact, He's still revealing Himself 
to his prophets even in Babylon, which is a great encouragement to the people. So we began to open up this name of God, Adonai, last week, the meaning of the name, and today we're going to begin to look at the manifestation of this God, the manifestation of the supreme ruler of the universe. And that's what we have in the vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. This revelation that Ezekiel experienced overwhelmed him. And the things that he saw were beyond human description. And, you know, many of the commentators and people, as they, as they write on Ezekiel 1 and try to describe what this vision is, they describe it with terms like bizarre, completely strange. What are Ezekiel's wheels? What are they all about? What are these creatures with four faces and four wings and with hands like human hands underneath one set of the wings? Why are they doing what they're doing? And what is this vision all about? It's completely bizarre. I don't think it's bizarre at all. I think it's completely unique. It is unlike anything Ezekiel ever experienced before. Completely unique was this vision because there was nothing really like it on earth that came close to describing it. And he's grasping for things that he thinks will help the people sort of understand what he saw. But he's failing to be able to describe the glory and the uniqueness of this vision. It's so wonderful. It's so magnificent, not just to see, but you'll notice as he goes through this vision experience, the sound that accompanies God is awesome. Like a mighty army that's being aroused to battle and the clanging of the, of the swords in the sheath and with shields. And you can imagine an army of 10,000 getting ready for battle and the sound of their marching and the sound of their shields clanging or the sound of mighty rushing water that sometimes is deafening. I had that experience Thursday. I was fishing and, and stupidly decided to wade out into the water. Water table's very high with all the rain and I was praying when I got out there that I would be able to get back without falling in. And the sound of the water when it's raging like that is loud. You can't hear another person talk sometimes when you're near a waterfall. That's what it's like to be in the presence of God. It overwhelms the senses. Think about my son Christian who has autism. And Christian is hypersensitive to certain kinds of light and sound. Sounds and sights that are normal to you and I Neurologically, his brain cannot process them or deafen those sounds, and they, they're like alarms to him. And they set him off neurologically. They overwhelm him neurologically. Brethren, every time you see somebody getting a vision of God or coming into the special presence of God, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like John and John 1, that's what happens. Their senses are completely overwhelmed. God is louder than they can listen to. He's brighter than their eyes can focus in on. 
And again and again and again, you see the same response that Ezekiel had. Men, these are God's people, His servants, fall on their face in the presence of His majesty. That's what happens here. Completely overwhelmed. There's no doubt that the vision formed the foundation of Ezekiel's power and served to strengthen him to perform his prophetic office. When Ezekiel preached on behalf of God, you better believe he preached authoritatively. Again and again he refers to what he's about to say as the message from the Lord. It's from this Adonai, Jehovah, that I saw that that the heavens were ripped apart and he, he gave me just a little glimpse of himself. And when he saw this vision and heard this vision and experienced this, it no doubt strengthened him to do the work God called him to do. And it should strengthen us too. It should embolden us. It should help us to be more faithful and to be more careful in our service of the Lord. He was indeed Adonai Jehovah, supreme ruler of heaven and earth. And I think his main message to the God-fearing believers was, look, I know we're in Babylon, and I know Nebuchadnezzar is really powerful and really threatening and alarming, and I know that our homeland is in the process of being judged and stripped from us, and soon we're not going to have the temple, but everything's going to be okay. Because this God has our back. And it's the same message, brethren, today. Everything is going to be okay. Whether we continue this moral decline, no matter who occupies the Oval Office, this throne will never be up for election. It's a permanent throne. And it's a permanent kingdom that will know no end and is continually expanding. And God's church is advancing. And not even the spiritual demonic forces of all hell combined can stop it. Let alone weak, puny human beings. You're going to see what the angels are like in this passage. How glorious they are. How amazing they are. If they're so glorious and amazing, how much more is God? But when I think of what Jesus did, and Pastor brought us to those thoughts earlier, when He came into this world, He was not just going against human beings. He was fighting spiritual forces in dark places. Angels that are of great power and strength. And He fought them and won the victory over them for His people because He is the supreme ruler invested with supreme glory and power able to save to the uttermost any and all who call upon Him. So we want to just describe and try to explain the vision a little bit. We're going to draw some lessons out of it in the end. We're not going to get through this whole thing. I mean, that was my original plan. Uh, You know, Dr. Steve Lawson did it. Why can't I? Well, you know... He's Dr. Steve Lawson, and I'm not. So I <laughs> but there's a lot to consider in the chapter, and I think it'll be worth our time to begin to open it up today, and then we'll take it up 
in, uh, in a few weeks when I come back to the pulpit again. But let's try to des uh, describe and explain the vision. And the main focus this morning is going to be on the angels attending God. And you look at verse 1 in Ezekiel chapter 1. Again, we read and we're reminded about the timing of this vision in Ezekiel's 30 year, 30th year, the time when he would have started to serve as priest in the temple. They served from 30 to 50. They did some sort of temple service after 50, but the bulk of uh, the main uh, thrust and the main responsibility of temple service was to be taken up by men who were age 30 to the age of 50. He would not have that opportunity, but he did by God's grace and calling, have the opportunity to be a prophet of the Lord to the people who were scattered in Babylon. Now it came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar among the exiles. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month and the fifth of the year of King Jehoiakim's exile. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. And now we move into the first part of the vision, and that is the angels who attended Adonai. The angels who attended this king of kings. And we read about it in verse 4 through 14. Consider verse 4. God is coming in the clouds. As I looked, behold, a high wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing intermittently and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like gleaming metal in the midst of the fire. Now, when you read through the Scriptures, often God appears to His people in a cloud. It's common imagery. It was a pillar of cloud, you'll remember, that led God's people out of Egypt. That's how God manifested Himself. That's how the Israelites knew God was with them. He led them with a cloud, in a cloud by day and fire by night. The cloud, no doubt, provided shelter from the heat of the sun, the fire, light, and the darkness of the night. God was with His people, and He led His people. And one of the manifestations of God as the people were moving out of Egypt into Israel was the cloud, the identity of God with the cloud. And here the presence and coming of God is described as a cloud coming with flashing lightning. And bright light around it, as Ezekiel describes what he's seeing. And a bright glow like that of metal in the midst of a fire. There's a cloud coming that represents God's presence. But there's flashes of lightning bursting out from the cloud. And around the cloud, it's as if there's, there's this glorious light that's trying to break through, but it's hidden by the cloud. It's behind this cloud that's coming from the north that he sees coming towards him. In another place in Scripture, Psalm 104, 3-4, we read about God making the clouds his chariot. He walks on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers. Flaming fire his ministers. When God travels out to war or to the earth, 
He travels on the clouds of glory because He's coming from heaven. He travels in a unique way, in a way that's not like you and I. We have to travel over the ground. God travels through the sky and upon the clouds. And I wonder, when we read of this description of the coming of God to Ezekiel in chapter 1 here, and this cloud that he sees... I wonder if the clouds and the smoke that attended the presence of God in visions like this, and even in pictures that we get, descriptions of the temple where you have the incense burning in the temple constantly, and there's this smoke from the incense that's rising up. And I do think that part of that was that the temple was to have a unique smell that was identified with God. Nobody could take the recipe for that incense and make it at home. It was God's incense, God's smell. When you went into the temple or got near the temple as the priest and you smelled that incense, it reminded you of the holy, unique presence of God. Nobody other, no one else's home smelled like this. No other community building, no other gathering had this scent. It was God's. But you can imagine as you burn incense, smoke also comes up from that. And I wonder if all of these things, the cloud and the smoke that you see associated with the presence of God, served as a veil to shield men from the glorious majesty of His radiance. In other words, the presence of God is so bright, so brilliant, that if He were to come without a cloud veiling it, nobody would survive it. Ezekiel is not getting a full vision of God. He is seeing through a mirror dimly, and it's awesome. Through the clouds, the flashing of the lightning, and the brilliance of the light, and you, you, you feel as if, you know, it's, it's like God is caged by the cloud. He's, he's breaking through, giving you a sense of how glorious He is, this imagery. But the cloud is shielding us from being threatened by His presence. Think of the transfiguration when the Lord Jesus revealed His glory on the mountain. And as the apostles described it, it was brilliant like the sun, whiter than any garment they had seen. The brilliance of God's presence, the glory of it, the power of it, the overwhelming nature of God. As He reveals Himself in these instances, Saul had a run in with the glory of of the resurrected, exalted Lord Jesus when He came to Him on the road to Damascus. How is the coming of Jesus described? A bright light shining. Unveiled by a cloud, what happened to Saul? Blinded. Instantly. And he instantly knows who it is. Who art thou, Adonai? He knew it was the supreme ruler of the universe. And that's the word he used to describe the person who came to him on the road to Damascus. Blinding light that's unapproachable. It's a light so blinding and piercing that that's why you read of even glorious, amazing angels. We're going to read of them in a few minutes using their wings to cover their face. Even glorious, majestic, sinless angels cannot 
behold the person of God. Or they would not survive. They cannot even handle it. We only see quick flashes of His glory. So dreadful and awe-inspiring that His enemies, we read in Isaiah 19.1, there Isaiah describes God coming to Egypt on the clouds, tremble at His presence and the hearts of His enemies melt before Him when He comes riding on the clouds to execute justice. You see how foolish men are when they talk about when I get to heaven. Well, I can't wait to ask God these things. How dare men think they can even be in the presence of God, let alone speak in the presence of God, let alone put God on trial and question Him? Foolishness. Foolishness. You will never stand before God and be alive without Him keeping you alive. Sinner or saint, it won't happen. It won't happen. Who can stand before Him? Who will contend with Him? This is why, as Isaiah describes God, and he looks at the nations, and he draws a comparison. What are the nations like compared to our God? You know what they're like to God? They're like a drop of water in a bucket. The nations are that small and puny before our God, brethren. That's how glorious He is. There has nothing. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, and indestructible. Even His people can only see glimpses of Him behind the curtain of clouds. Think of the significance of God coming in the clouds. Reminds us of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? Here he is on trial before, before Caiaphas, the high priest, first, and then he'll go on to stand before Pilate. He's already being abused. He's being beaten. Maybe his face is bloodied. His lips are swollen. His eyes are blackened. And Caiaphas is questioning him, and he asks him, just tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? How does Jesus respond? In Matthew 26, 64, he said to him, you have said it yourself, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's how Jesus is going to come back to earth. On the clouds of heaven. These are heavenly clouds. They're the chariots of Almighty God. And He's going to come with the right hand of power. And all who falsely accused Him will stand before Him and give an account. Amazing faith of the Lord Jesus in His own identity as the Son of God who came to redeem sinners. It sends chills up my spine. This is the God who came to Ezekiel. This is our God who came to earth. Allowed Himself to be treated with such contempt. To be spit upon to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to have his beard plucked out, to be nailed to the cross, a crown of thorns pressed upon his head, his back ripped open. This God of glory allowed all of that to happen to him when he was on earth. 
in order to redeem His people from their sin. This is one of the things, and I have to just jump to it, when you think about this vision of God and how glorious He is and how powerful He is and how indestructible He is. And then you think about what it took to wash our sin away. Most things God could do by the word of His power, speak a word, and it happened. But He couldn't do that when it came to our sin. He had to become a man and live a life we could never live and die on the cross to take our sin. That's the only way that problem we have, all of us have, could be removed. That's how serious sin is. You who think of sin lightly. This is what it took for God to redeem sinners. He couldn't send angels to do it. I, could, I, I mean, I, I envision the angels begging Him to figure out a way how they could go. We are the ministers. We are the servants. You stay upon your throne. We will go and do it. None of them could do it. Only the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, would have to become a man do what we could not in our place so that we could be redeemed. And He did it. He did it. But how difficult of a work it was. How humiliating. Adonai is coming with attendants. He's coming with these creatures with Him that are described in verses 5-14. through Glorious angels, four of them. We have a general description in verses 5-9. through nine. Let's read that together. And within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they sparkled like polished bronze. This is the same description, the feet of Christ that we have given in, in, in Revelation 1. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. Straight were their legs, with feet like that of a calf, sparkling like polished bronze. You get a picture of, of strength and of power and of stability of angels and of creatures that are immovable. They've got feet like bronze that are steadfast and immovable and strong. They are like bulls, armed guards, ready to defend God and to do His bidding at His instant request. We read of their wings touching each other. What does that mean? Well, maybe it speaks to and reveals these angels, the four of them, their complete harmony with one another in their task and in their calling. They're touching each other. 
And they're unified in their purpose. They're unified in their mindset. They're single-mindedly serving God together. We read in the Bible how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Unity among God's creatures is something that God pleases God to the core of His being. When he sees that unity, it reminds him of the unity he has, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfectly united as three in one. Well, the angels in heaven are like this, completely united in the service of God, in their purpose to glorify God, in their purpose to defend God, and to be ministers for God, and to serve God no matter what He wants. They're united together in that purpose. It's almost as if they're forming a circle. We have them described in the passages as under the, the, the vision of God that we're going to come to. But it's, it's almost as if they're, they're, folding, they're forming a, 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 a heavenly shield wall with their wings. Daring anyone to even come close. You will not penetrate. You will not come through. Nobody comes into the presence of this God who is holy, holy, holy. They're glowing and gleaming. They're on fire for God. They have zeal for God. And it never goes out day and night. They serve the Lord. Glorious and brilliance. No disunity in heaven. Strongly bound together. These are the hosts of heaven we hear described in the Bible over which our God is Lord. When you hear that description, He's the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? He's not just King reigning in the sphere of men. He is King of heaven and earth. He's reigning in the sphere of glory and of heaven over glorious beings, brethren, like these that we hear described. He is their Lord and their King. And these glorious creatures, much greater than you and I, do His bidding. And they would never dare resist their God's will. They gladly do it. They do it unitedly. You don't see one of these creatures trying to rise above the next. They completely submit to their will and place in heaven completely submit to God's will and having them serve Him together, unitedly, filled with joy, filled with zeal, filled with heavenly, angelic power that is unmatched by any power you could ever hear about in the world and in every generation, including our own. We have some of the greatest military might this world has ever known. And none of it can stand before these creatures that Ezekiel saw on that day by the river Chabar. And that included, by the way, my Israelite friends as Ezekiel preached, this Babylonian army and this Babylonian king. Forget that God is more glorious. The hosts of heaven are more glorious than Nebuchadnezzar and all of his armies. And not even a dozen, four of them, will make a million flee. No match are the hosts of heaven for men. We read their faces did not turn when they moved. 
when we move, we've got to turn, right? And when you turn, especially in battle, every time you turn your head, you create a blind side. When they moved, their faces did not have to turn. Remember, they had four of them. To the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. What does that mean? God will not be outflanked. You will not get around these angels because they got faces behind and faces in the front. You will not flank their west, their western flank because they got faces. They can see all of the enemies of God no matter how they approach, no matter which way they try to take down God. These powerful angelic forces are going to stop them. Incredible vision on the field of battle and throughout the whole universe, protecting the north-south, east-west. No one will surprise them, and anyone who approaches the Lord of heaven must get through them. These are the ones Jesus had in mind when being arrested. The night he was betrayed, soldiers come. Peter thinks he's a cherubim, thinks he's an angel, brings out his sword. He's going to cut off the ear. He's going to cut off the heads of, of these people coming to get Jesus. Jesus is like, put the sword away. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Brethren, it's amazing, I mean, the obedience of the angels that they allowed the Lord to go through with what He went through with. Can you imagine what it was like for this glorious cherubim to see this Lord of glory that they had worshipped up until now treated like He was being treated? Can you imagine the holy rage that was welling up in the hearts of these angels? And the angels hear this word of Jesus, and they're like, just say the word, Lord. Just say the word. One little word will fell them. Isn't that what Martin Luther wrote? A mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. One little word and all of God's enemies are gone. And we're given a glimpse here as to how that might take place and who would be the ones who execute it. What force must it have been, I say again, what restraint for these glorious angels to watch the Son of God treated with such contempt by creatures of the dust? The righteous indignation and wonder these glorious creatures must have had when watching their King of Kings die in the place of sinners. The only time these angels open up the shield wall for God is when He walks out from behind. Or when we spiritually, which is an amazing concept, in our prayers we need to get by these angels. But they open up their wings when saints pray to God in Jesus' name.
Here comes the sound of your voice past the cherubim and into the ears of Almighty God because you have Christ as your intercessor and as your Savior because He rose the third day. Victorious for sinners. Out of love for you and for me, we are allowed through Him to approach the throne of God boldly. What privilege. What a privilege it is to be a child of God. To be a a servant of God. And these angels, they, they considered it a privilege to occupy these posts for the Lord. A privilege to be a servant of the Lord. And we not only get to be servants, brethren, but by the coming of Christ and the perfect life of Christ and the atoning death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, we get to be the the children of God. Children have a higher station in the family than servants of the family. We have the privilege of being nearer to God relationally, it seems, than even angels. Because of our identity, our union to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, Savior of sinners. Isn't that awesome? That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing privilege. May God help us to value our standing in Christ. To value this Savior who has made this possible to unite us to this holy God who dwells in an approachable light, the one before whom angels can't even look at Him. And yet we've been united to Him, reconciled to Him. Awesome privilege. Incredible privilege we have. Consider their faces and posture. As for the form of their faces, each had a human face. All four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread about above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. They're described as Ezekiel describes these glorious servants of God, these angels who dwell in the presence of God in terms of the most stately, powerful, and majestic creatures on earth. This would have meant something to Israelites. To you and I, what's the purpose of an ox, a bull? You know, rodeos, you know, and people ride them, whatever. We have tractors now that do the work of what the bulls used to do for them. But think of it now, when you see an excavator moving dirt, when you see a bulldozer plowing all of that dirt, dirt that maybe you've tried to shovel, and then the bulldozer comes in and does in 30 seconds, what would have taken you two weeks, and you sit there and you're amazed by the power, the hydraulics of these machines, how they can move the earth. Well, bulls in the ancient world were like ancient excavators and bulldozers. When they got the bull out into the field, and that bull started to pull the plow through stony ground, through difficult earth, it was as if the earth wasn't even there. And they plowed up fields in half the time it would take men to do it. They were a picture of power, a picture of something that was unstoppable, a picture of something that could overcome obstacles, also a picture of work, 
of activity. We read of the bulls in Proverbs 14.4. Working and, and providing that, that income and that provision that people need when the bull is out working for you. And it's a picture of, of God at work. At, at, of God accomplishing His purposes, using angels to do it. And He's accomplishing all of the work He has planned in the world. There's no work he can't accomplish. There's no field God will not be able to plow up and get ready for his harvest. Strength is with God. That's what these things depict. The stateliness of a lion, king of the jungle. Why did the Babylonians love to hunt lions, apparently? That's one commentator I read that. They were a glorious beast. If you could take down a lion, that's the king of the jungle. That's the king of beasts. And he's trying to describe, to get into our minds, the glory of God using images that will understand God is like a proud lion. When you look in the face of a lion or see one walking through the wilderness, there is no fear in a lion's eyes. There's fear in everything else in the jungle, but not in the face of the lion. It's a picture of confidence, of stability. Stateliness. There's something of glory with the mane of a lion. Beautiful animal. The glory of God, the beauty of God, the confidence of God. We feel sometimes weak and anxious and insecure and worried about our nation, about the world, about the moral climate, about how we're going to be Christians. Is there going to be a place for Christians? Are we going to have religious liberty? And our confidence is shaken by the laws that we see being passed, by our liberties that seem to be shrunk. But we need to be reminded, brethren, that we're connected to a God who has no worry and no anxiety about your life. You are the apple of this God's eye. Isn't that incredible? You are His people. You're not just the God, you're, you're not just the people of a God. You are the people of this God. And because of that, we should be confident in this world that's filled with tons of opportunity for anxiety and worry. Pictured as an eagle. I mean, think of an eagle, stately and beautiful. I mean, I've never seen an eagle attacked or being eaten by another bird or animal. Never. Amazing. Just the look of an eagle, proud, confident. Its nests are way above the earth. It soars and flies wherever it wants to go. In an instant, it seems it could be there. No obstacles on earth. It doesn't have to get over the mountains and the hills. It flies right over them. The eagle wants to get somewhere. Believe this, it gets there quickly. And so does God's messengers. So does God. It's a picture of God being everywhere at any time and instantly coming to the aid of His people when they need it. Any of you see Lord of the Rings? Nobody? There's a great scene in that movie where the hobbits and their friends are all in trouble. And the orcs are, are getting them, and the orcs' animals they ride on, and it just looks so dim. And they're at the top of this mountain, and they don't know how they're going to get out. And here these winged creatures, they look like, like eagles, essentially, 
come out of nowhere and grasp up the hobbits and their friends and take them to safety and come down and attack the enemies of this little band of brothers trying to accomplish their task. And they're saved. And this is the picture of God. Like an eagle, He can swoop down to your aid in an instant. These are His messengers who do His bidding on behalf of His people. What an encouragement. We would expect God's angels and heavenly hosts to be described like this, wouldn't we? A human face. Make no mistake, angels have reason like men do. This is what separates us from the creatures and puts us above them. These angels had human faces. They can reason too. They're full of wisdom too. They're logical as well. And at the top of God's creation in terms of glory and power. The freedom and speed of their movements is highlighted here. Verse 10, And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire. There's this burning, there's this brightness all the time, like torches moving among the living beings. The fire was bright, and lightning was flashing from the fire, and the living beings ran back and forth like bolts of lightning. The angels, like a bolt of lightning getting to where they had to go. That's why, that's why Jesus could say, one word of my Father and 10,000 legions of angels would immediately be at my disposal. Lightning fast, incredibly quick, instant and immediate always ready to obey the command of the Lord and do His bidding instantly, immediately, moving freely without hindrance, speedily at the hand of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Adonai, the Commander-in-Chief of Chiefs. One word, and like a lightning bolt, they get it done. And what do we have to worry about if this God and His hosts are for us? Who can be against us, brethren? This is not the army of the United States of America. You cannot compare this force to the Air Force or the newly created Space Force. The angels are Adonai's force. Nothing in our day can overcome these powerfully equipped and competent warriors of God. And therefore, nothing can overcome God's people. Isn't that awesome? Now, we, we have considered for this morning glory of God's angels, of God's heavenly host. And they're amazing. They're like nothing in this world. How much more amazing must God be? the ruler, the creator of these beings. How much greater is God than the angels? They are impure in God's eyes. How much purer to behold is God? How much more glorious? And the angels recognize it. 
gladly and willfully. They worship God in heaven, covered faces, holy, 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 completely unlike anything, completely unique. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they worship Him gladly, humbly, bowing in His presence. We need to think about this God who is for us, who can be against us. We need to be reminded of what He's like. Not to mention everything we have for us written down regarding Jesus Christ when He came into the world and we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. What a wonderful Savior. If you call upon Him and believe in Him, you will not be disappointed. He'll save you if you ask Him to. You repent of your sin and you turn to Christ. He will save you. You need to do that this morning. You need to get on this God's side and stop being on the opposite side of God. You're not going to have a party with Satan in hell. It's not going to be fun at all. So don't think that's the case. Well, I'm just going to go to hell with my friends and we're going to have a great party and we're going to just party with the devil. No, you're not going to party with the devil. You're going to be alone. You're going to be in intense agony because that's how sinful sin is. But Jesus Christ came not to judge the world, but to save the world. That if you believe in Him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Ezekiel preached in his day about this God to the people of his generation. And they by and large rejected Him. God is still preaching to sinners. Repent and believe in Christ, and you will be saved. How is that possible to be made right with this God? Jesus Christ. We remembered His death. He died for your sins. He lived a perfect life you could never live, that you need in your standing before God to be right with God, to reconcile with God. And He died for all of your sins, all the sins you've committed, all the sins you will commit. He paid for every single one of them on the cross. He bore the wrath you deserve in your place. His blood was spilt so yours could be spared. His body and soul were broken so that yours could be spared, so that you could be saved from the wrath to come. That's the message of Easter. That's the message preached here every Sunday. And the question is, where are you with God this morning? Make sure, immediately you go to Him and make sure you're right with Him and plead for Him to save you, and you will not be disappointed. And brethren, may you be like Ezekiel was in his day. May we all be Ezekiels, those whom God has strengthened. Our strength lies in Him, not in your ability to make money, not in whether we have religious freedom given to us by the Constitution, by the government, or whether those things are protected and withheld, or whether we even have them in 10, 20 years. Our strength is not in the Bill of Rights. It's not. Because even that can fail us and be stripped from us. Or in national security. As we see, the nation of Israel is gone. Who's the real strength of Israel? This God who's appearing to Ezekiel. That's what he's telling them. If we get scattered from the Catskills, if we get scattered and have to run for our lives, we can be assured of this. Just like Ezekiel, God will be with us too. He will be with us no matter where, where we go, no matter what circumstance we're in, and He will bring us to glory, brethren. He will bring us there. He will not lose one of us. What a blessing. Let's pray.